Hey, it's Sarah. I hope you're staying home and staying safe. Even though we don't have any games to watch right now, we still have plenty of great podcasts to listen to. One of my favorites is the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. That's her dog. This week, she talks with SB Nation's Spencer Hall about the top quarterbacks in next week's NFL draft. You can find the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. At AutoZone, they're all about giving you more choices to help you get what you need and get it fast. If you need something for a job that has to get done today, just order on AutoZone.com and choose free same-day pickup. You can pick your order up in-store at more than 5,700 locations nationwide, or if you prefer, you can have it brought out to you with their curbside option. Your choice. AutoZone also offers next-day delivery. Just order what you need on AutoZone.com by 10 p.m., and they'll bring it to your front door the next day. It's great for those jobs that can wait until tomorrow. That's how AutoZone helps you get your job done easier. Restrictions and details at AutoZone.com. Get in the zone. AutoZone. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, I'm Charles Barkley. My dilemma is not to drink Diet Coke, not to drink too much alcohol. That's my only two dilemmas. Okay, Chuck, so this Diet Coke alcohol thing, I think we all need to be aware of how our habits are changing potentially negatively while we're stuck at home. And one of those for many people is that everything is available all the time in your fridge, in your pantry, uh, on your DVR, right? So we might be binging shows for too long. I was just talking to a friend who realized that he's been staying up till like 4 a.m. playing Fortnite, 6 a.m. playing Fortnite. The, the option of time, uh, kind of the, the concept of time has gone away and maybe also the concept of meals. And, and so for you, uh, trying to limit the Diet Coke and the alcohol is very smart. And one thing, obviously, I'm sure you thought of is, you know, uh, only have alcohol on the weekends, like Friday, Saturday night, or limit the number per day. And one way to do that that's much easier than just trusting yourself is to actually use labels or some sort of tracking. And I know that sounds very serious, but if you actually really care about this and you say, I'm only allowed to have three um, alcoholic drinks a week or something, then you need to actually have a tally where you mark them down and keep track. If you want to only have two Diet Cokes a day instead of 10, if you're used to having that many, then you have to number the cans and literally this is Monday one and Monday two, and that's it. Um, it sounds very strict, but you're used to discipline. You're an NBA guy. Um, so if, if things get dire and you can't just trust yourself, uh, maybe consider taking some serious action, getting organized with your drinking habits. The commish has spoken. My guest is a Naismith Hall of Famer, voted one of the 50 greatest NBA players of all time, two-time Olympic gold medalist, now a multiple Emmy award-winning analyst for the wildly popular NBA on TNT. It's the round mound of rebound, the Crisco kid, street beef, three of the best nicknames of all time, by the way. It's Charles Barkley. We had a great time and he fought through some technical issues, which I very much appreciate. So every once in a while you hear a little hiccup. Uh, we were doing our best on a variety of platforms. Uh, but we had a great conversation. We talked about what a big influence Moses Malone was on his career. Dr. J, his very honest feelings about Bob Knight, uh, something that rhymes with click. 
who left him uh, off the 84 Olympic roster? Why there was that tension there? Uh, behind the scenes with the Dream Team, his friendship with Michael Jordan falling apart, the regrets he has over the 91 incident in which he was suspended for trying to spit on a heckler but hit an eight-year-old girl instead, how he's spending his quarantine time, also his memories of that great 97-98 Bulls team that's about to be memorialized in the 10-part series, The Last Dance. Uh, I think you guys are going to love this because has anyone ever listened to a conversation with Charles Barkley and not enjoyed it? Chuck, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're such a busy guy, so I so appreciate it. And and I, before we get to everything else, I just want to start with the important stuff. I'm so glad you're feeling better. You were concerned that you might have COVID-19. You actually got tested for it, uh, waited a while, test that ultimately came back negative. So how are you feeling now? Yeah, I, you know, actually, I don't even know if I was sick. I was worn down. So I just bought a, a distillery in Alabama, uh, a vodka gin distillery uh, called Redmont Vodka. And I had three days of party kind of grand opening. And I, mm. you know, obviously I had to party a little bit. Yeah. Of and course. then, and then I flew to New York and I had to do Colbert. So it was a little hectic with the media and everything. And then by the time I got to Atlanta, I was totally mentally and physically exhausted. And I said, man, I don't feel good. And they said, Hey, go get tested. I didn't know if it was going to take 10 days. Mm. Um, so 10 days in a condo was going to drive me freaking nuts. Because <laughs> uh, I actually felt better like two days later once I got some sleep and some rest. But I didn't want to take any chances. So I self-quarantined. And like I said, they, uh, TNT, I'm not going to complain because everybody else waiting for their results too. But it took 10 days. And I was going freaking nuts. And um, <laughs> and the first time they called me and said, you negative, I jumped on a plane to get to Arizona. And uh, it, it's all good now. Well, I'm so glad you had time to join me. I want to talk a bunch about you. And then I want to talk a little about Jordan and the Bulls ahead of this great documentary that's coming out. Uh, but let's start way back when, because I was reading about you growing up in Leeds, Alabama. And I hadn't heard this before, that you were the first black baby born at an segregated all-white hospital that in your elementary school you're one of the first you know black students there were you aware of of race at a young age and being different than most of the people in your neighborhood no not at all and it, it, it always said it's the, the the people who are racist they, who screw it up they're always adults uh, adults mm-hmm. uh, adults make people racist kids are not you see all the time sarah if you're just walking around anywhere in the world, black kids and little white kids playing, they, they get along great. It's only us adults who screw it up and we bring race into the equation. And I didn't know, uh, like I said, nobody knows that uh, at the time. And obviously, as I've gotten older, I'm very aware of the, the racial history of Alabama, going to Selma, Montgomery, uh, going back to the Barcott, the civil rights. Uh, we got a great museum now, the civil rights bombings at the, the church in Birmingham. I'm very aware of that later. But listen, man, kids aren't racist. Adults screw up everything like they do in the world. But kids are not racist. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, it's unfortunate how you eventually grow up into realizing that you're different or that the area that you live in is a certain way. You also, your your father and mother got divorced when you were mm-hmm. young and your father mm-hmm. left the family. She got remarried and your stepfather died when you were very young. Did you notice an absence of male role models? Was it something that you were aware of that, that you'd had these two men in your life that were no longer there as you were growing up? Or did you find them elsewhere? No, I, I think that uh, it, it's kind of like being poor. Uh, you don't realize you're poor until you get older and you're like, man, we were poor. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm from the generation. I'm not like these guys today that spend all their time in front of video games. You know, I, I come I come from a real small town and we played every day. Uh, we had a great time. My mother and grandmother were amazing women. Uh, my grandmother to this day is still the greatest person I've ever met in my life. Uh, she was just flat out. She was tough now, uh, but she like she was really a little difficult because, you know, because, uh, you know, we were the, like the little moonshiners in town. So uh, my grandmother, we sold alcohol to make ends meet. And every weekend, these guys would come over starting on Friday and they'd gamble Friday night, Saturday and Sunday. There was fights all the time. Hmm. It, it was, but I didn't know any better. Uh, and me and my brothers were the, kind of like the little mini bartenders. Uh, <laughs> but like I always tell people, you don't really know what environment you're growing up in until you get older. Uh, I mean, you, you know, like I, I didn't even realize we were poor till I got older. You know, I feel one thing I feel blessed about growing up in a small town because we never had to worry about gangs. Uh, we wasn't like Chicago, New York, L.A., Baltimore. You know, it was just a one high school. We went from K to 12 together. But we never worried about we were just like young, stupid kids just trying to enjoy life. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's clear that you at a young age had an, had an affinity for sports and sports got you through. But I was surprised to find out that you had been much shorter up until after your junior year. You grew six inches after your junior year. Um, something similar happened to my dad. He was about six feet until he was a junior in high school and then grew about four inches. I'm curious if it changed your personality because there's a big difference between a five foot 10 man and a six foot four, six foot five man. Great point, but it really didn't bother me, my personality, because, you know, I went from, you know, we're talking only talking about a year. So, you know, people always say, where did Charles Barkley come from? So I was never like, you know, all these guys who came out, who've been getting letters since they were a freshman in high school and they get to walk around with a big head for two or three or four (laughs) years. You know, I never even got a college offer until my senior year. You know, I was a 5'10 backup point guard. Then one year I show up, I'm 6'5", and the season started, and I'm starting to do my thing. And then, like I say, I still wasn't heavily recruited. No big-time schools came after me. It was pretty much Alabama, Auburn, and UAB. Like, I didn't get letters from Duke, North Carolina, Kansas. Those were never in the picture. But uh, I probably was going to stay close to home uh, because of my mother and grandmother anyway. But the best thing to have to me was being a backup point guard. Because when you are undersized power forward, if you can dribble the ball, it's a really huge advantage against big guys because big guys can't move laterally. You know, the one thing I tell these guys, if you're going to play against big guys, you can't post them up. you got to take them out on the floor 12, 15 feet and come at them full speed off the dribble. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, learning that, that skill when you're younger before you get really big and they start to just drop you in the paint and expect you just to work on your post moves opens up your game so much. I wish, I wish I had done more of that. I was opposite. I was taller than you, uh, by the time I was like 12 up until you got that ghost bird. So I, I never learned that stuff. Um, I love reading that the, uh, the assistant to Auburn's head coach was at your high school state 
semifinals game and reported seeing, quote, a fat guy who can play like the wind. And that apparently was you, Chuck. And so he saw the magic early on. Um, I'm curious, when you got to Auburn, did you feel like you were a big fish in a small pond? Did you feel like you were big man on campus ready to beat everyone? Or did it take a little while for you to feel comfortable at the at the collegiate level? Well, two things. Uh, number one, the guy who discovered me is a guy named Herbert Green. Uh, he came to recruit one of my teammates, a guy named Travis Abernathy, who was a relative and a great player. And he said, he, he I've heard this story a hundred times from Herbert. He says, Sonny, we're trying to recruit Travis Abernathy, but we really should be trying to get this kid, Charles Barkley. He said, you're not going to believe this little fat kid, how explosive he is, how he can run and he can jump. And Sonny says, I sent you to get me a guard, not a forward or a center. Because we have some good big guys at Auburn. He says, just come with me one time and see this kid play. So at the time, I was playing against probably the best big man in the country, a guy named Bobby Lee Hurt. We actually had two of the top five basketball players in the country in Alabama, Ennis Wiley, who was like the number one point guard who could have went anywhere in the country, and Bobby Lee Hurt, who actually got drafted uh right around either the – I think he stayed for four years. He got drafted – the, the next year, but he was like one of the top big men in the country. So the time they came to see me play, I had 30 and 20 mm-hmm. against the best, against the best big guy in the country. And that from that point on, that was a Christmas tournament. I remember it very well. That was the first time I ever even got offers from big time schools because, you know, a lot of schools are trying to, cause like I say, at that time I'm playing exclusively center. So there's not a lot of teams that are looking for a six five and a half center or a six four and a half six five center. So I never really gotten any letters from any big time schools. Life today is kind of a lot. It forces us to always be on, but every now and then it's time to just stop. Crack open a mountain cold Coors Light and chill. So when you choose to turn off, choose the one beer that's made to chill. Coors Light, mountain cold refreshment, made to chill. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process, cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged, so it's actually made to chill. The mountains on Coors Light's cold-activated bottles and cans turn blue when chilled to perfection. Born in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in 1978, Coors Light is refreshing, crisp, and only 102 calories. That's why Coors Light is the one to choose when you need a moment of chill, when you want to reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You have all this success. You're an All-American at Auburn, and you end up getting drafted as a junior by the Sixers with the fifth pick. Um, and you end up on a team with Julius Irving and Moses Malone. What are you learning from both of those guys as a rookie? Well, Moses Malone is by far and away the most important person uh, in my basketball life. You know, Sarah, when I was in college, I played about right at 300 pounds. In high school and college, you can get by being fat because you're more talented than most other people. And so I get drafted by the Sixers, and I'm not getting to play. And Moses, who had to live in the same building with me, became, he was a father figure to me. I, I went up to his condo one night. I said, Moses, why am I not getting to, getting to play? 
He says, you're fat and you're lazy. And I said, I said, what do you mean? He says, you're fat and you're lazy. And we talked for about a couple hours. He said, Charles, you're lazy because you're fat. He says, you can't play in the NBA at 300 pounds. You just can't do it. And this guy who was already – Hall of Famer, great, one of the greatest ever, worked out with me every morning, worked out with me every night. He said, let's get to 280, 290. I get to 290, and he said, let's get to 285, 280. I get there. Uh, now I'm starting to get to play a little bit because obviously the less fat you are, you can work harder. So then he says, let's get to 270. Now I'm actually starting we get to 260, 250. He said, 250 is your plan weight. So that's the most important person. Because, you know, I've been around long enough. I've seen guys eat their way out the league. Yeah. But if Moses – and I still I call him dad every time I saw him. And for him to take me under his wing was the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life. You know, Dr. J taught me about saving my money. I had Maurice Cheeks, Andrew Tony, Bobby Jones, Clint Richardson – uh, Clement Johnson, you know, Sarah, that's one of the things I hate about the NBA today. Like the oldest guy on your team is like 24 and a guy, <laughs> and, and a guy who's 24 don't know anything. So I think all these teams should always have a guy who is 30, 35, who can talk to them about life, how to save their money. They taught me how to dress. Cause in the beginning, you know, when you're a college kid, you wear warm ups everywhere. Yeah. And they like, they took me shopping and I almost killed them because I spent like $20,000 for the first <laughs> time in my life. And I bought all these suits that I had never worn, had a suit before. I got one suit a year early, but then when they took me, they took me to a place called boys and I spent like $20,000 on clothes. And I thought they were freaking nuts, <laughs> but they're like, Charles, this is professional basketball. We don't wear warm up suits everywhere. And things like that, I, I can't thank those guys enough for making me grow up and be, you know, one of my favorite people is Herm Edwards. You always say this is professional, professional sports. But you got a lot of kids who don't know what professional means. Uh, I played with a bunch of them, and you try to work with them. They look at you like you're crazy. Uh, but the best thing happened to me was getting drafted by the Sixers playing around those older guys. Yeah, and it's a great influence for you, particularly because even though you were incredibly athletically gifted, a lot of your success in the NBA was ended up being you being the opposite of lazy, you outworking people, outsmarting people. Um, how far into your career when you're surrounded by these players, a lot of whom are, are taller than you at your position, how far into it did you start to think, I could really be one of the greats here if I work hard enough? Well, I knew after my second year I was going to be a great player. Uh, because, like, going back to college, my coach said to me, you know, you're leading the SEC in rebounding as a freshman. I says, yeah, what does that mean? He says, like, he's a son, if you lead the league in rebounding, that's pretty good, especially for a freshman. So I led the league in rebounding every year I was in college. And when I got to the NBA, Moses said, son, if you get me 10 rebounds a night, you're going to be in this league for a long time, make a lot of money, and be really, really good. I, at the time, I didn't know I could score because I think the most points I averaged in college was like 13. But it's a lot easier to score in the NBA because you're not playing against the zone the whole time and things like that. So once I my dribbling came around and I learned to go one-on-one, -on -one, the, the scoring was easy. But my bread and butter was always the rebounding. He's like, Charles, get every rebound. 
I said, man, anybody can get 10 rebounds a night. And he would show me in the paper. He says, like, there's only 10 guys in the world averaging 10 rebounds a night. If you can get 10 rebounds a night, I don't care who you are, you're going to be a stud for a long time. And that's how my rebounding obsession started. When you made the uh, the 92 Dream Team, how much more did it mean to you after you didn't make the 84 Olympics? Bob Knight said it was because you didn't have the defense and you didn't, you know, you didn't make the cut. But most people believed you were more talented than other guys that made that 84 team. How much more important was it then when you got the call in 92? Well, it, it didn't bother me I didn't make it in 84 because what, what, what happened to me was, you know, I, at this time I don't, I don't have that full-blown confidence was separate good players from great players and superstars. So we had 120-some players, I think, when we went to the Olympics. And I'm like, everybody was a household name. Like, everybody who you ever heard about. I mean, we probably got 20 to 40 Hall of Famers going back to 84 to by the time the careers ended. And when I got there... My coach said to me, he says, I think you're going to be the best player there. He said, I said, Coach, you got a lot of faith in me. He said, son, I've watched you play every day for a couple of years. I think you are a machine and you're going to get it done. And I go there and I make it. We start like with 120. I get, get down to 180, 60, 40, 20. And then Bobby Knight, who just was a prick, didn't like me. I should have made the team easily because I think John Thompson said I was the second-best player there. And let me get one thing straight. I was the second-best player there because I remember my coach talking to John Thompson because who was really ironic, who went to the airport to me when they went from 20 to 16 was Terry Porter, John Stockton, and Carl Malone. <laughs> I remember us four riding to the airport together, and we were like, "Yeah, yo, I did, you know, Bobby's an interesting guy." <laughs> and uh, but I, I didn't worry about it because I had did what I wanted to do. I want to like I want to measure myself against all these other guys. So once I realized that, I'm like, I am one of the best players in the country. I can play with anybody. But the thing when I got back to school, my coach said, "Hey, John Tustin said uh, Bobby was never going to pick you because he just didn't like you." He had preconceived notions he wasn't going to like me, but he said, he said you were the second best player there. Mm-hmm. And he said, he says, who in the country is better than you? I said, Coach, there's this black dude. <laughs> I said, this dude is the best basketball player I've ever seen. He says, I actually thought I was really, really good, but I've seen this guy. He's really black. And he said, what's his name? I said, his name is Michael Jordan. He goes to the University of North Carolina. I said, coach, I've never played against a player who I said, oh, that dude better than me. And when I left there, I remember telling people, I said, yo, man, there's this dude at North Carolina. He is the best I've ever seen for somebody who's in college. Mm. I said, because we had a who's who. Like I said, there's probably 20 to 30 Hall of Famers, oh, minimum 20 to 30 Hall of Famers who was at that trial. Like I said, we got from 120 to the final 16. I mean, obviously, uh, me, John, and Carl, and uh, Terry Porter's, uh, you know, right there also. And I'm like, dude, I ain't never seen nothing like this black dude, Michael Jordan. 
Uh, but, you know, Bobby had made up his mind I wasn't going to make the team. But the reason I wasn't depressed, I had found out how good a player I was. Because, you know, Sarah, at the time, you know, I'm still – I'm doing all right, but I don't know how good of a player I am. Yeah. That's such a great attitude to have coming out of there, too, instead of being frustrated. Because you do end up getting to go to the Olympics and being a part of the Dream Team. Yeah. I want to hear about the game – the greatest game that nobody ever saw, which is how they describe the practice where they split up the two halves of the dream team. You played against each other and Michael and others have said that when it comes to talent and competition, it's, it's one of the greatest games they've ever played in. Tell us some of the behind the scenes on that practice. Well, it was really about talent and ego. Uh, you got the greatest players ever and we all have ego. Uh, we all got pride and we're all trying to prove a point. So Magic's there, obviously. So they had just beaten the Lakers for the championship. So Magic wasn't having that Scotty-Michael dynamic Mm because Scotty had did a fantastic job on Magic. So they were trying to kill each other. You had Clyde Drexler, who hated Michael. He was trying to prove he was just as good as Michael. So they went at it like it was game seven every day. Me and Carl Malone was trying to prove who was the best power forward in the world, so we tried to kill each other every day. <laughs> you had the two best centers in the world, David Robinson and Patrick Ewing. So it, it was like you either A or B, and for a couple of hours every day, it was the most intense, not just one day, it was the most intense because we had very few, because you always you play a lot of games, but on the days that we could really scrimmage, it's the most intense environment I've ever been in. And like I say, it had a lot to do with talent, but it's ego. I want to prove that to Carl, I was the best power forward. You know, Michael wanted to kill Clyde because Clyde thought he was good <laughs> as him. Magic was coming back at Scotty because he had just beat him in the finals. And David and Patrick was trying to prove who was the best center in the NBA. So I actually played on the first two dream teams because I hated playing in 96 because all the players were complaining about playing time. Because at 92, I could not believe how well the guys got along. Like, we never had an issue. Nobody ever complained about playing time. Uh, and, and we got together every night. Like, me, Magic, Scott, and Michael played cards every night. You know, we talk, everybody talked about how Larry Bird and Patrick Ewing became great friends. I mean, it was awesome. But then I played in 96, and it was a nightmare for me because guys were bitching about playing time. Guys were bitching about who was starting. Because in 92, Chuck had two starting lineups. And we just alternated. Nobody complained. Right. But in 96, that was like, I'm, we had guys complaining about playing time. We got guys complaining about who's starting. It was really not a lot of fun. The only good thing about it for me in 96, my mother and grandmother got an opportunity to come because Leeds, Alabama is close to Atlanta because obviously you couldn't take everybody to Barcelona. Right. But 96 was not nearly as much fun as 92. Because, man, that's, these guys were complaining all the time. Yeah, I don't know if this reference will hit for you, but it's like it's like the early days of Real Housewives. It was really entertaining. And then once they all figured out if they threw enough tables and fought enough, they'd get more screen time. And then yeah. the later episodes suck. So it's like everyone saw the dream team and the legacy and the excitement. And then they were like, I want in on that, but I want to be the star of that this time. And it changes everything. Yeah, I think also we might have been a little older. Right. But – like I say, the guys, I could not believe how selfless and how well everybody got along. Like, it was just fun to be around those guys. Uh, like I said, the guys wasn't jerks in 96. 
But, man, there was so much complaining going on. I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm at the end of my career. I'm not going to let these fools make my Olympic experience. Because right. I said this before, not just to you now. I think the Olympics are the coolest sporting event that I've ever been to. Yeah, the Olympics are sort of the dream for anyone who plays any sport, even things that don't have, uh, you know, it's 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 the imaginary gold medal stand and, and the and the anthem playing. When you look back at your career, Olympics, NBA, all the playing, you know, there's so many highs and then and then there's lows and there's moments that were controversial. You seem very at peace with who you are and certainly not one who's ever going to change how honest and transparent you are. But are there any things that you look back on and you and you regret either you know, things that you said or done during your career? Well, you know, even if you factor in the stupid things, you can learn from stupid things. Ain't no perfect people out here. I can admire that Bobby Nice, one of the greatest coaches of all time, who was a flawed, who did some things wrong. But that still does not take away the fact that he's one of the greatest coaches ever. And I admire him because he graduates as players uh, even though we have never seen eye to eye, I can still admire and respect him. You know, it's the same thing when we, we had these meetings at TNT when we were doing the Kobe thing. And we're like, yeah, Kobe made a mistake. Whatever happened, we don't know. It's not our, any of our business, to be honest with you. But do we want to – like, this is a painful thing for all of us who's in the NBA family. What do we talk about Colorado and this this thing? I'm like – I don't think this is the time where this man passed, his daughter passed, and seven other amazing people passed away. Do we want to celebrate his life, his legacy, or do we want to spend all our time talking about the mistakes that, quote-unquote, he made? And I look at that the same way. I learned from my stupid decisions. You know, uh, even if you go back to the spin thing, that probably was the turning point uh, in my life. Because I wasn't playing basketball to be great at it. I was planning to, plan to stick it in the ass of everybody who had ever did something wrong to me in my life. Like, every time I stepped on the court, I want to stick it to Miss Gomez because I flunk Spanish. <laughs> you, know, I want, you know, I want to stick it to my dad because he weren't there. And then when I flunked Spanish, I didn't get to march. And people were – I remember – Standing on the baseball stadium, we graduated on a football stadium at my high school, and I stood on the baseball stadium by myself for two hours. Well, it didn't take two hours, probably an hour and a half, and I cried the whole time. And I remember some of my friends making fun of me because I didn't graduate. And so my first few years in the NBA, instead of realizing I flunked Spanish because I didn't do good in the class, it wasn't Miss Gomez's fault. You know, my dad pissed me off because he had flown from California to see me graduate, and I didn't graduate because I flunked Spanish. And he ripped me a new asshole, and I was steamed. Uh, and then I was mad at all those kids who, who made fun of me because I didn't graduate. And that night, when I got suspended, and I had to sit in my room by myself. I was like, yo, man, you got to grow up and – play basketball just because you're great at it. You don't have to stick it to uh, – you You can't – all that stuff – it was your fault you flunked Spanish. Hey, your mom and dad got a divorce. You got to let that go. You can't be mad at all those fools in high school. And then from that point on, I'm like, hey, man, just play basketball because you're great at it. 
And that was probably the most important thing that happened to me as a basketball player, other than Moses getting my fat ass in shape. <laughs> because it was, it, like I say, I, man, I was playing basketball. I was on a mission to stick it to everybody who'd ever wronged me in my life. And that's not the way you play sports. You play it because you're great at it. And it's, it's, it's joy. It should be joyful. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Kobe's uh, funeral and actually you and I hung out during all-star week and talked about sort of the ways that people digested and reacted to losing him. And one of those was changing their, their perspective on letting people grow after the mistakes they made, the things they did at one point and whether you hope for them to change after that and to react differently because of it. It also brought together a lot of people. I know, there was some sadness around Shaq who hadn't spoken to him in a couple of years. And there were some moments of people arriving for his funeral or coming to memorialize him and talk about relationships that they wish hadn't fallen apart. I'm, I'm curious when, when you're in, in those spaces with, with Jordan, who you had a falling out with back in 2015, whether it made you reflect on the ways that you guys and your relationships had been affected by, you know, you criticizing his work as a GM or him not wanting to have, you know, you talk about your, your friendship publicly. Well, he's never talked about the friendship publicly, but I, you know, cause I love Michael like a brother and I miss Michael. He's the greatest basketball player ever. And I wish him nothing but the best, but you know, I, I got to do my job and I can't criticize other people who run basketball teams and give one of my best friends a pass. Right. You can't, that's not the way you should do this. One of the reasons I don't like reporters to, and that's not true. I like reporters. I got a lot of friends who are reporters. But I hate when they play favorites. Like, your job is not to play God. Your job is to be fair. Because I feel, and I'm always be fair, because what I tell people is the public is never going to meet these guys. They're never going to meet these guys. So for you to go on TV, somebody in Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Maine, Kentucky, they're never probably going to meet these guys. So you have a moral obligation to go on TV or radio and like, you know what, let me take my personal opinion mm -hmm. out of the equation and be fair to this guy. Uh, and I think that's really important when you got, because television is the most powerful thing in the world. I tell people, you know, one of my great friends is like an older brother, is Mike Wilburn. You know, he's written a couple of my books. And he's been like a big brother figure to me. And we talk all the time. He says, he was telling me like, yo, dude, me and Tony were with the Washington Post for 25, 30 years. And nobody knew who the hell we were. Mm -hmm. But like <laughs> the first time you go on TV, like, man. And and I I understand that when you put, when you're on television, man, this is a really big deal. People believe you. And so I think it's just really important to try to be honest and fair like I say, I love Michael. I miss Michael. I wish him nothing but the best. But it would be disingenuous for me to get on television. And, and, and the thing that really sucks about the whole thing, I really just said that Michael did not hire enough strong people around him. Right. Because every famous person has to have the same uh, worries. Like, because you buy all the dinners, you buy all the drinks, they're on your private jet. The key is having enough people around you who are going to be honest with you and say, hey, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And that's the reason you see a lot of famous people fail because, you know, everybody around you is on the payroll. 
Right. Then, of course, they're not going to be honest with you. Exactly. Because right. they, they, they want the private jet and the, and the great stakes and things like that. Yeah. Well, so I'm wondering, Chuck, because I would imagine that even Michael would understand that you have to do your job. You can't clearly tell everyone how great he is while criticizing others. So when you were trying to mend that friendship and you went and said that to him, hey, I got to be fair. I got to be honest. How did he how did he respond to any way other than than just to continue to be angry about something that he knows is the way that you have to do your job? Well, we haven't talked since that. Well, other, other, I got. I thought my better name was MF, 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 MF. <laughs> you know, and like I said, it was a painful conversation. And, and like I say, I miss him a lot. But you know, Sarah, that, I mean, you're you're in a situation too. Whether you write or talk about it on television, there's people you probably that you really like that you have to criticize. Mm-hmm. And I the, criticized the, you not that uh, long ago for something but, you said, so it but, happens. But, <laughs> but 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 like I say, it, it, that sucks. Uh, it really does suck. Mm-hmm. Take my basketball thing. I never want to get on TV and say a player sucks and things like that. But if a guy gets on the game and sucks, I got to tell the truth, and it, it's really uncomfortable. Because listen, I, I'm a player. I want all the players to do good. I never want to criticize a player, but that's part of the way this thing works. Like you lose all your credibility if you're not honest and fair. Yeah, I completely agree. And you being transparent and honest is is so much of what makes people love you. It's unfortunate that he can't move past that. You guys are very different in general. He's very private. You're very vocal and transparent and accessible to people. I'm curious what you're most looking forward to seeing in this Last Dance documentary. It's 10 parts, massively long, behind the scenes, and then lots of people talking about it. Do you think people will get to see a side of Michael that he isn't open with publicly? I doubt it. I'm not sure he's he going to open up to anybody. Uh, he's very guarded, and I can understand that. Uh, I think the documentary will be fascinating. But, you know, I don't think it's going to be anything new for me. I mean, I might see a couple things, but me and Michael got drafted the same year. Uh, and we were great, great friends for a long time. I don't think there's nothing that's going to be – I mean, that, may, that might be some team things that I wasn't privy to. But I don't think there's anything that's going to be shown that's going to shock me. Right. I mean, I've, I've been with him at his best. You know, I've been with him at his worst. You know, we're on vacation together when his father got killed, and he asked me to host his golf tournament in Chicago. Hmm. So I've seen him in the best of times and the worst of times. So that's probably nothing that's going to happen in the documentary. Um First of all, it's just going to be great to see some other than swamp people, di- <laughs> Tiger, di- King. Uh, di- uh, Tiger King, Donald <laughs> Drive. You know, I love Guy Fieri, but I'm so sick of driving to Triple D's. Uh, so I've watched Triple D's, Swamp People, uh, Andrew Zimmer and Bizarre Foods. Yeah. Those are three of my favorite shows. I'm sick of watching those shows. I want to see some real content soon. <laughs> well, I'm super excited for it. I'm curious, you know, you're a, you're a hall of famer. You're one of the greatest ever. You've had this incredible career and yet it still feels like there's this divide between MJ and almost anybody else, the way that he's revered, the way that he's seen. In fact, there's clips from old school NBA where you see opposing teams benches, react to something Michael did and then realize that they can't be like cheering or like, you know, jumping out of their seats for the other team. You hear guys say, I think Michael Jordan is God disguised as a basketball player. Um, I can't imagine that happening 
even for a guy as great as Kobe or LeBron, of course people sing their praises, but did it feel like he was in a different stratosphere even when you guys were playing against each other and you yourself were one of the greats? No, I, I think that it just goes to show you there are a lot of great players, but there's very few players like Michael, Tiger, Wayne Gretzky, probably Tom Brady. There are very few players who have it. Like Michael had it. Uh, you know, Tiger had it. Like I said, there, there are a lot of great tennis players, there are a lot of great golfers, but there are very few players who have that thing that people know you who don't know anything about sports. Mm-hmm. As great as Kobe was, as great as LeBron is, Michael just had that thing that separated him. Well, I'll give you an example. So we hung out a lot when he was playing baseball. And I'm still playing. And we would have to rope off an area. We went to a, a, a nightclub called Jets and Sinker. We used to play pool a lot. And we'd have to rope off an area. And that'd be 20 or 30 people just stared at him for like <laughs> two hours, not even worry about what was going on in the nightclub. Like I tell people, I've been in this thing a long time. I've never seen people relate or get the amount of excitement that they did for Michael. And I've been around, you know, Kareem, Magic and Bird, who the reason the NBA is today, Magic and Bird are the two most important people in NBA history, mm-hmm. but they saved the NBA. But I've never, and I've been around those guys a hundred times, but I've never seen the way the public reacts around Michael Jordan. Like even we're on the dream team, like there was a cheer for all of us. But when Michael stepped out, it was a different, like uh, a little, uh, it's like, it was like a boy band. Right. Screaming girls at a bar band concert. Yeah. He was the Justin Timberlake to your in sync. Yes. Uh, yes, he was. He was the Paul McCartney of the, right. of the Beatles. Right, right. What do you remember specifically about that 97-98 team and playing against them? Because we sort of look back now and think every time the Bulls made the finals, they were going to win because they did. But it yeah. wasn't inevitable. It would have been easy for that team where they knew everyone was going their separate ways, where Rodman is out of control at times and Jackson wants out. Scotty's asking for a trade. You know, it would have been easy for them to not be able to keep it together and win that last one. What do you remember about about playing against them? Well, uh, for me personally, the Michael Jordan will to win. He wasn't going to let them lose. Like, he was not going to allow them to lose. I remember specifically uh, we played them in the finals. I don't think that was the year we played them in the finals. Mm-mm. When I got traded to Phoenix, uh, I remember telling Cod Fitzsimmons, I says, we, I said, okay, guys, he picks me up the first day. I said, okay, we're going to the finals. And I says, we're going to play the Bulls for the championship. He says, how do you know that? I said, because I think I'm the best basketball player in the world. Y'all got me some help with Dan Marley and Kevin Johnson. I says, I think I'm the best player in the world. And I said, I'm going to get a chance to play against Michael Jordan and prove it to myself and to the rest of the world. And he says, you sure? I said, I guarantee you we're going to go to the finals and play these guys. So we get there. 
And Cotton calls me. He says, you got your wish. I said, this is the wish I wanted. So game one, I, I blame myself because we were so nervous for game one, we didn't play well. And the Bulls obviously beat us. We were at home. And I remember in game two, I was talking to my daughter, and she was really upset. She said, Dad, you've never told me you were going to lose before. You've always told me we we're going to win. I said, <laughs> I said, Christiana, uh, we're going to win the world championship. I told you that. And I remember after game two, I said, guys, get on my back. We're going to win tonight. And I scored like 40-something, if I remember correctly. And Michael scored 50. <laughs> and I remember when I got home, my daughter was crying. And I was like, she said, Dad, you have never told me that. I said, Christian, I don't know if we can win this series. Yeah. I said, uh, Michael Jordan might be better than me. I said, I've never said another basketball player was better than me before. She said, I, I know. And I said, I'm not going to give up. You know me better than that. But I said, I'm going to have to come up with something different because this guy might be better than me. And I hate I hated saying that because I'd never said that before. I said, Bird got Mikhail in Paris. I said, Magic got Kareem and James Worthy. I said, you know, Michael got Scotty, who's a good player. I said, Horace Grant's a great defender. I said, but I, I really feel like uh, we should beat these guys. Uh, but after game two, I said, I got to come up with something. But obviously, I wasn't able to come up with it. Yeah. I remember I was in Arizona during that final series, and I hiked all the way to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back up in one day. And it was nighttime as we were getting to the top of the Grand Canyon. And we get back to where we were staying, and my teacher and other friends that were with me were like, the Bulls won it. They beat the Suns. It was game six that I had missed mm -hmm. watching because I was in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So I'll always remember where I was when I found out about that one because I didn't get to watch it live. I had to watch it later. Um, Chuck, I'm, I'm, I could talk to you forever, but I, I've been keeping you for so long. So you have to do one more thing uh, before we let you go. Okay. It's, it's the thing that nobody expects that everybody does. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You could only have one. Well, you know, uh, I'm like the biggest Eagle fan in the world. Okay. I just saw the Eagles like a month ago. So uh, the Hotel California, uh, I'll take that one if I'm on a desert island. I love the Eagles. I've been traveling with the Eagles for like 20-something years. <laughs> So I'm going to probably go with my Eagles. I love that. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think you have that's contributed most to your success? Well, I think it's a plus and a negative. Like, it took me a while to get it under control, but my stubbornness to stick it to other people who I felt like had wronged me. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you got to realize that you got to be successful for yourself. It is not about – because there's always going to be haters – but you got to be successful for yourself, not for other people. Yeah. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? I think my biggest failure is I did not do a good job when I was in college as far as making young black kids want to get their education. Hmm. And I've said it before because I got bailed out because I was a great basketball player. But one of the reasons I get frustrated at the time when t people talk about paying college players and things like that is 
Uh, getting a free education is a really big deal. There are so many people out here who are successful who own a, owe a lot of college debt. And to, the ability to get a free education, I, I, I'll never take it for granted. Like I say, I got bailed out because I could jump and run and dunk. But I feel bad for the kids who went to college with me who weren't good at sports, who lives did not turn out as good as mine. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest regret, not being more edu- uh, more an educational person when I was in college. Yeah. Uh, number four, outside of the basketball court, have you ever been in a fist fight? Oh, yeah, unfortunately. You know, I've been arrested probably four or five times for fighting with fans, unfortunately. And I regret it to a certain degree. I, I really do. But – you know, fans have gotten, especially now with the internet, fans have gotten so mean-spirited. One of the reasons mm. I don't do any social media, you know, people think they can say anything to you. I regret punching fans now, but at the time I didn't. <laughs> have you ever lost a fist fight? I mean, I feel like you would have to be fighting like Shaq. Well, not Shaq now, but, you know, back in the day. Well, you could probably take it- him now. Uh, I don't know if I can. He's a big old dude. But I tell people this. If I get in a fight with you, you're probably going to have to fight me every day. Because I'm not, I'm not going to take an ass kick and lying down. You'll probably have to fight me every day. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for one day, who would it be? You know, Sarah, I'm not going to answer that question because uh, – and I'm not going to do no Lou Gehrig. <laughs> I, I actually think – from a little short, fat kid from Leeds, Alabama, growing up in the projects. I think I've had the greatest life a person could possibly have. Yeah. I grew up to be Charles Barkley, man. I got no complaints. I've exceeded all my expectations. I, and, and I'm not saying it's just to blow smoke. I'm the luckiest dude in the world, period. Yeah. And the attitude and the feeling of understanding that and being grateful for it is going to carry you far too, because there are plenty of people who have achieved a lot and made it farther than they ever could have imagined. And because they can't appreciate that, they'll never be satisfied. Yeah. So, it, it, you, it, you can't, and you got to, at some point you have to say, damn, I'm doing good. I did good. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Listen, if somebody and I say this, and I I said, man, if somebody had told me I was going to grow up and be Charles Barkley, I'd be like, you're (laughs) kidding me, right? All this stuff going to happen to me? I mean, it's it's like every now and then you get to stop and like, I cannot believe how this life has turned out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree. Uh, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? I think probably the spin incident. Uh, to be honest, uh, when you make a fool out of yourself nationwide and you like, you just, you have to take it. You just have to take it. So that's probably the most I've ever been uh, embarrassed in my life. Yeah. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Hmm. Great question. I wish that I could, uh, be more open. Fame does not allow you the ability to be close with that many people Hmm. because most of the people around you, you can't trust. (laughs) And like I say, I've never been on Michael's level or Tiger's level. They're both very guarded, but I wish I could do a better job of like, Oh, having a few more friends like that I can open up to. 
I will say that as far as famous people, really famous, really beloved people, you are the best that I have met in terms of being accessible and making relationships, and by far. Well, I, I, I think it's an honor and a privilege to be in the limelight uh, and to be famous. I tell these guys, you know, I know a lot of guys are like, man, I hate to be bothered. I say, if you don't want to be bothered, why don't you go get a nine to five? <laughs> and I bet you'll be racing back on to this side of the room. <laughs> I say, go get a nine to five where you work every day, 10 hours a day, and don't make any money. All you got to do is sign a couple autographs, take a couple pictures, and play a stupid sport. Shut <laughs> the hell up. <laughs> Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for one day, what one rule would you put into place that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh, you just got to be nice. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you don't even have to go overboard. Just be cordial to, uh, like, don't go, you know, one of the reasons I don't do social media, I was talking to Ernie, Ernie about this the other day. He's trying to get me to get on the internet. That's Ernie. <laughs> My problem with people is why do you, like, you might not like somebody. Why you got to get on uh, get on some, a platform and say it or be mean. Right. I never understand. Like, okay, you don't like this guy. Why do you have to take the time out of your life to get on some platform and bash somebody? I just don't understand that. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it comes back to that hurt people, hurt people. If you're not very happy yeah. with yourself and That's what you have going on, then you want to lash out and try to make yourself feel better by, by making other people feel bad too. Once you get I, comfortable I, with who you are, and you just want to make other people feel happy too. Yeah, I always say they just they live with their parents. They live down in the basement. <laughs> they sit around in their pajamas all day, and they they they, they go around the internet. Let me see who I can right. say something mean about every day instead of getting out their parents, getting out of your pajamas and doing something. Uh, number nine. What's the most scared you've ever been? I think I was on an airplane one time. I was going to Alabama, and we got this really bad storm. And there's no doubt in my mind the plane turned upside down for <laughs> for a split second. I mean, it was it was so bad we couldn't even land. We had to fly out of this storm and land in another city like three hours. Uh, I thought that was it. But I, I tell people, I said, I don't know how it was, it's aeronautically possible, but there's no doubt in my mind that plane was upside down for 10, 15 <laughs> seconds. No doubt in my mind. Uh, finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? A good dude. <laughs> that works. Yeah, that a works. good dude. Very simple. Like I say, and I'm not one of those people, hey, when I'm dead, I'm gone. But, you know, there's people, like, you know, I always tell people, when people die, you say, oh, good dude, going to miss him. And then there's some people we die, like, glad he's gone. <laughs> I mean, I just want people to say, hey, he was a good dude. And yeah. keep it moving. I don't want no mourning. I'm not doing all that funeral crap. Just burn my fat ass up and spread my ashes somewhere. <laughs> like, I, I hate that. Remember all the good times and keep it moving. <laughs> I feel the same way. I don't want to take up a whole bunch of space when I'm dead. There's not enough space in most places already. Just put me under a tree or something. Yeah, but I like this notion that you're going to go see somebody like, uh, they're probably not down there right now. <laughs> like, why, like, let me go to the graveyard I mean, I and talk they to are. them. They're, Where do you think they went? Uh, well, they're they not there. <laughs> They're not there. I can promise you that. They're gone forever. And, like, you think about the good memories. Yeah. But I'm not going to go to the graveyard and say, 
Oh, Granny and Mama, I love y'all. How y'all doing? Like, uh, no, no, no. I just think about the good memories. That's what I want people to say. Think about the good stuff. Forget all that other stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Charles, finally, I have to let you go. Who should I have on this podcast? Who do you think is interesting and awesome that I should talk to? Do you, do you prefer sports people? No, I really have anybody on. You know, Michelle Obama is amazing. Um, I want to meet Eminem. Those are people like that. I like to meet in my lifetime. I met Stoop Dog a couple of years ago, and I thought I was like a, I had a girl, a girl crush on Stoop Dog. <laughs> it, was, it was cool for me to meet him. All right, so Michelle Obama, Eminem, Snoop Dogg. Uh, it's a good list. It's I got I got some stuff to work on here. <laughs> Chuck, thank you so much for doing this. I so appreciate it. You're such a good dude. Oh, you're it's good. My dude. pleasure. Okay, look I at that. You're I appreciate dude. it. Hey, y'all take care of yourself and be safe during this quarantine, all right? It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, once again, for the however manyth time I've had to complain about something while the world is in a global pandemic, it feels very empty uh, to complain. But uh, there are plenty of things that still annoy me. Shocker. And one of them is, how do dishes accumulate so fast? I mean, honestly, it feels like I've done dishes 8,000 times since I got stuck in this quarantine. And I realize it's because I'm cooking more. And I realize it's because, you know, you're not eating lunch or dinner out. Every single meal you have is in your home. But it still feels like at any moment, there are dishes taunting me from the sink. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because it feels like what I do is I wake up, I make breakfast, I try to do the dishes at that time. But maybe there's like a spare pot that's not ready or a pan that I use that's still cooling. And then I come back later and it feels like those pots and pans had pot pan sex and created smaller baby dishes and pans everywhere that accumulated as if from nowhere. Now, this could be the fact that I live with a man who is my husband who maybe doesn't have the same clean it right after you use it approach. That could be it. Or it could be, again, the magical pot pan sex that is resulting in a full sink at all times. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. I need to stop complaining about the dishes and just do them and or start to outsource them to the other human being in my house who may or may not be creating the pot pan offspring. There, I fixed it. If you want me to fix a dilemma, go to the That's What She Said with Sarah Spain podcast on the iTunes app. Go to reviews, rate the show, of course, as many stars as possible, and leave it in your review, and maybe I will fix it in a future episode. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.